I often think of the life I've led And oh, it's a wonder I ain't dead Drinking and gambling Staying out all night Living in a fool's paradise My mother told me Thank you, Hari, for being here. It's really wonderful to have you on the show. This Good evening. to be here. So uh, let's start talking about uh, what it is that got you into journalism in the first place. Ah, uh, you know, I kind of had a circuitous route. I started out as a disc jockey at a radio station in Seattle, Washington. I was in a, a Spinning music? Yes. Talk radio? Yes, yeah. spinning music. Uh -huh. I was, uh, it was kind of postmodern rock, whatever that was called. Uh, and so I actually, it just happened to be that I was at a high school that was a magnet for mm -hmm. broadcast journalism. So it had a television station, it had a little radio station that could. And, you know, I remember seeing this movie, Fisher King, and there was a Jeff Bridges character. Absolutely. Like, wow, this Wasn't guy's he a so morning, powerful. He was like a, a shock jock yeah, or something, He was a super right? shock uh -huh. jock. And I was like, I, I think I can do that. And then, obviously, that was misguided, but I, I started to appreciate news. And then when I went to college, I just thought that um, there was a possibility for me to transition into television. I mm. did a lot of internships. Mm -hmm. and at this Matinee idol looks yeah, yeah, to I go wish. along with the, yeah, uh, with the a, radio voice. mustache, right. Uh -huh. so, uh, and then eventually, through all these internships, I ended up getting uh, work in uh, Yakima, Washington, out kind of between my junior and senior college. Sure. And it was a small TV? market. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it was the kind of internship where you pay your school to get credit, you take out a loan to live out there, and what you can afford is to share a trailer on an apple orchard with some guy, his girlfriend, and his dog. Uh -huh. I got along with the dog. So uh -huh. you know, you're working literally six days a week uh, from about 7, 7.30 a.m. till about 10 because you work for the evening newscast, and then when that's done, you turn around and shoot sports okay. for the night show. So okay. But, you know, you shoot, you write, you edit, you do everything. And it was such a compressed period of time, but it was a fantastic experience. And then I bounced around for work a lot. So, mm -hmm. so cross-training in Apple Orchards in Yakima, Washington. <laughs> was your, so you're for the first full-on yeah, exposure right. to yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and um, I, how did you then move into uh, being engaged more in the sort of current affairs and kind of politics side of... Uh, of the business. Yeah, you know, I bounced around for work uh, in the kind of what used to be the traditional route for television news, which is mm -hmm. small market, medium market, big market, network, right? Mm -hmm. So I went from uh, college, I went and had a job in Raleigh, North Carolina. Then I went and uh, worked in San Francisco for a technology focused uh, mm -hmm. broadcast mm -hmm. program called CNET, or I should say a network called CNET. And then uh, I ran my own production company for a little bit. Then I, after, uh, I you know, Got the call, so to speak, from World News at Peter Jennings, and yep. I, it was you know he was an idol of mine. I I watched him growing up, and it was a fantastic opportunity to work with him for a while. And then I really wanted to be a reporter, and they had different plans for me. And so I had an opportunity to jump ship and go to CBS at the time. The Evening News, Katie Kirk was just launching, sure. and they said we'd like a reporter in Dallas, Texas. Would you live there? Mm -hmm. said, well, sure. So it's a Get fantastic experience. Yeah, yeah, and sure. then. Out of the blue, the, the news hour opportunity came up, and you know, after working in network television for about six years and realizing that 90 seconds, maybe two minutes, is the edge of what you're going to get sure, time-wise, sure. 
And then the, the news hour is like, well, most of our pieces are about six or seven minutes. Uh -huh. You know, that's like a mini doc. At Absolutely. That's so, expansive at that point, right? <laughs> exactly. That's almost so, indulgent. Yeah, it point. is indulgent. Uh -huh. So we had time and we didn't have commercials. And so I said, yeah, let's try this. And it's been about four years there. Sure. And um, I mean, I'm an avid viewer of the News Hour, by the way. Great. Love the show uh, and excited as well about the News Hour Weekend Edition, which yeah. you've uh, recently assumed yeah. the uh, chair for. Um, curious to understand. Who is the viewership of the news hour? I mean, it's obviously a different thing that they are doing than your typical, uh, you know, broad commercial broadcast network. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, when the news hour first started, it was kind of designed as the newscast that people would consume after they watched Walter Cronkite or after they watched a local evening or a national evening news program. Mm. So you might have gotten your news from you know, uh, a, a network, and then you wanted the analysis, and you would watch McNeil and Lehrer mm -hmm. together or in different incarnations. So that's where the, the program started. And now we probably have about a million people a night that are still watching on a nightly basis, but we know from surveys and uh, ratings and so forth that they are by far uh, more educated, mm -hmm. more affluent, more influential. So certainly folks that are in the policy arena in D.C., but sure. also elsewhere. Sure. And so, um, you know, it's similar to, like, to say the Charlie Rose audience mm -hmm. or the 60 Minutes audience, mm -hmm. um, people who have the patience for six or seven minutes per story. Um, you know, the news hour is kind of the last place on TV where you can find intelligent, informed people disagree agreeably about mm -hmm. matters that matter night after night. Sure. Right? So it's... You can find one of those things or two of those things. You really rarely can find all of those things in the same place. So these are people who are hungry for information. They're curious. And they're actually open to hearing a different perspective and making up their mind for themselves mm -hmm. instead of having it sort of fed for them by a particular cable channel or another. Sure. And um, how important is it to grow that viewer base over time? It's very important because we're public media. A huge portion of our uh, funds actually comes from viewers. Um, contrary to popular belief, a very small fraction, about 10 to 15 percent, actually comes from the government mm -hmm. I mean, when it comes to government money to PBS, mm -hmm. right? So all the sort of big bird hoopla that we saw during the election cycle sure. was, uh, you know, a lot more rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, but, you know, I think that this is one of the last places on the dial, so to speak, if I use that old analog mm -hmm. term, where people actually have a stake in the finished product. Sure. You know, so when it comes to thinking about public media, I mean, there was this fantastic, I don't know, I'm, I'm now promoting a different program, but Frontline had a fantastic documentary recently about, uh, uh, called The League of Denial, about the NFL and mm. concussions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They had a partner in, let's see, how, how should I say, a sports network, four letters, owned by a company that has a mouseketeer. No, anyway, you know what? Huge, what the, <laughs> uh, huge carrying fees. Yeah, huge carrying fees. So, sure. so this sports network was a partner with Frontline until about two months prior to broadcast. In the actual production of the documentary, right? Yeah, yep. and it was, you know, and it's one of those things where those, uh, uh, those folks backed out, uh, and they will say it wasn't because of the pressure, but hey, they're also a partner of the NFL. Sure. And, you know, at some point, there's a bean counter saying, we have a billion-dollar partnership with this other company that this documentary is about to t take on, head on. Mm -hmm. We can't afford it, right? Mm -hmm. So unlike a corporate uh, media entity, Frontline answers to no one. Yeah. Right? We're, they're not taking any uh, corporate money. It, they're funded by foundations. They're funded by viewers. And so that's kind of the flexibility that I think that uh, PBS, public media, NewsHour, Frontline, and others have. The independence to actually... Report a story yeah. 
as objectively as possible yeah. in depth. Yeah. And, uh, and when you see the League of Denial, the, the ripple effects of it, I mean, it's, you know, it's been trending on Twitter for the last two, three Tuesdays. And it's also, I mean, you have Brett Favre come out and say, I can't remember my sure. daughter playing soccer, or yep. I can't remember exactly what his quote was. And you know, Tony Dorsett, I mean, you know, this is a really significant and important story, and it's not something that corporate media is tackling. Sure. So um, I had some perfect segue into this question that I've got about how you've seen the profession evolve over time. I might widen that a little bit too and just say how have you seen the media, the sort of media landscape evolve during your career thus far? You know, I'd say the barriers to entry to create content mm -hmm. are much lower today. Mm -hmm. So when I was in Yakima, Washington, I had 78 pounds, we actually weighed it because we thought it was a lot of weight, but of gear that we would schlep around. We had a very heavy tripod, we had this camera that was connected with a very thick cable to a large deck that took three quarter inch tapes. My phone now gives you 10 times better video quality sure. than all of that gear combined. Sure. Now you could be stuffing the bushel of apples from Yakima in the backpack <laughs> as opposed to 70 pounds of gear, right? That's right, and then uh -huh. you stick a GoPro on top of the bushel and anyway. Yep. But uh, there's, it's, it's so, we are now capable of creating more content than ever sure. before at a much faster quality and sharing that content. Mm -hmm. That changes the dynamic of... And it's not just the buried entry of, of size and scale, it's also price, right? To your point yes. on GoPro, you could exactly. you know, essentially shoot what people are using to shoot all sorts of far out stuff as yeah. an individual on a bicycle, for yeah, example. Yeah, absolutely. So when you, when you see that... You know, the, the, peop the, the barrier, or the, I should say the, the uniqueness of a television station in the past was that it had all the gear and it had the equipment and it's the only person that could do this uh, amazing elaborate production. Sure. Now look over on the, you know, the, the, the YouTube channels and you have young people in their living rooms having such an enormous audience that they're able to clear four, five, six, sometimes figure salaries mm -hmm. from their bedrooms, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So it's a, that part of the paradigm has shifted significantly. And then I also think that you know, when you look at the sort of technological arc of significant moments in television history, I'd say that one of the first was the remote control, mm -hmm. because then you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to rely on a CBS house or an NBC house, sure. partly because Dad was too lazy to get up, Let's get out of the Barker Lounge, right? And right. Go so, do it. Uh -huh. and that was a that was a big shift, and all of a sudden, people had to jockey in, and then came uh, you know five, ten, fifteen years later, cable. It sort of multiplied the channel op opportunities into 25, 50, 200 channels, but sure. we didn't actually increase the population by those same numbers. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden now, we've really fragmented and diced this audience sure. down. Then obviously came the internet and DVRs. Mm -hmm. So we've now completely time shifted almost everything and we're consuming what we want when we want, yep. increasingly so. There's still a segment of the population that comes to TV at a specific time, and I don't disrespect them. I'm very happy that they're you know, loyal viewers. Mm -hmm. Great, if you want a lean back experience, I want to be able to create a program for you. Sure. But I, in order to grow this base, I have to figure out how to get my content in front of people for whom it's relevant, mm -hmm. where the conversations already are. Mm -hmm. So I really have to start thinking about an extra 15 to 20% of the energy going into marketing and distribution of content. Sure, sure. Uh, which I think raises the question then, what's the impact of Twitter, for example, as a medium in the context of journalism as you know it? Well, I think for real-time information, mm -hmm. there hasn't been anything that's come up that's anywhere close to Twitter. 
that said, so for example, we just had you know recently the the horrible super typhoon that tore through the Philippines. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually a, a population that is fairly fluent with their cell phones. Mm -hmm. So there is tons of video that's now emerging a day or two after when somebody's able to connect their phone to a battery or a, a power source, mm -hmm. and actually there's some sort of a cell signal. They're able to say, oh, by the way, this is what the storm looked like from my window, my window, my window, right? Sure. And so when it comes to Real-time access to information, uh, immediate social media like that are very important. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the larger um, impacts of social media are trying to engage with an audience and having an ongoing dialogue, really tearing that fourth wall down yep. that I don't necessarily have the, any sort of a voice of God complex sitting in the anchor chair, really trying to say, how do I get my audience involved in both the creation of content mm -hmm. as well as the distribution mm -hmm. of content. Mm -hmm. And that's actually capable today. And I think over time, people who have a relationship with an institution or an individual that is helping them understand the world are sure. more likely to be loyal to that institution or individual sure. than ones who don't. Makes sense. So just high level of stickiness or yeah. engagement. Right. Do you think that the level of discourse gets elevated in that context or does it get degraded? just depends on who you're listening to and what channels you watch, right? Sure. So like any medium right now, you could say that the political discourse is uh, horrendous if you watched two separate cable channels who mm -hmm. want to yell and scream all day, mm -hmm. and that makes sense and money for them. Or you could say, hey, this uh, conversation between Mark Shields and David Brooks is now accessible on YouTube mm -hmm. in near real time. Yep. Right, so it, it's, it's, I think, <clears throat> it's kind of a chicken or egg. I don't want to let the audience off the hook completely. I think we are, as collective media, more responsible for making smarter content. Yep. And I think it's also uh, individual choice to consume it. Sure. Have you felt pressure um, to respond to the more partisan bent that uh, some of the uh, very successful commercial stations uh, have begun to occupy? I mean, how do you kind of, how, how do you think about your work, your journalism, the context of these advocates, I suppose. Is really yeah, I mean, look, there's, the, you know, when you look at this arc, I don't know, maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now, this notion of being, um, a, a, you know, having a table where people with, um, you know, differing viewpoints can show up and mm -hmm. trying not to particularly take a side, maybe that's going to be a, a very short-lived idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've had press for a long time be in the pockets of their newspapers. We've we've had very pointed and partisan viewpoints in newspapers for a long time. Sure, right? you might even make the case that the historical arc has been about that's right political so, right. organs essentially, as opposed to yeah. you know this concept of objective journalism for the longer arc. Yeah, you know? and I don't I don't I mean you know the the notions of objectivity are, are are tossed around and and kind of beaten over and over again. And I think it's more just about being fair. And mm -hmm. I try to be fair minded when I approach a story. I try to figure out uh, you know what. How, how would somebody who doesn't think like this specific source react to this? And is there a place for them? I, mean, I think one of the most important jobs that the media does is mm -hmm. to frame the edges of the conversation mm -hmm. and try to say, who is very representative of this point of view, who's very articulate at this, sure. and who's not going to come off as just some crazy wingnut, and, mm -hmm. and say, okay, I get what you're thinking, and you should have uh, a forum to make your case. Sure. That said... It's not a, a, a case of false equivalency. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would say that I am so far convinced by the 97 and 98 percent of climate scientists who think that climate change is real and mm -hmm. that we're having some impacts on it. 
partly from my reporting, sure. but also partly from the science. So yep. I'm not necessarily going to sit there and say, oh, let's give you Equal 50% time, right? of time. Sure, that yeah. makes sense. Um, <clears throat> and in terms of one of the bigger stories that's sort of come down over the last uh, 18 months is, this, is the role of WikiLeaks in the context of our public discourse. Um, and I guess I'm curious to know kind of, is WikiLeaks journalism in your estimation? Kind of how would PBS and the NewsHour have dealt with uh, Glenn Greenwald coming uh, to them, for example, to kind of try to frame this story uh, as opposed to the New York Times and The Guardian? Well, I think that, um, I think if he, if he or uh, anybody had approached the NewsHour first, I mean, we're simply not staffed to try to do the kind of verification that mm -hmm. both the Times newsroom and the Guardian newsroom could. Sure. Right? So it's f first kind of figuring out, like, well, don't bite off more than you can chew. Mm -hmm. um, that said, let's say, best case scenario, we had a thousand more people that sure. could. Minions, too. Yeah, right. Just verify. Army of people that uh -huh. could. Um, you know, that's, that's a much more interesting hypothetical. And I think that um, whether or not WikiLeaks is journalism is um, not so much dependent on uh, what are the ends that an individual is trying to accomplish and what sort of political ends that they're, they're trying to go at, mm -hmm. more like more, more the method. Is this essentially a publication in this arena? Um, and then what sorts of responsible steps is that publication taking? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, early on there were attempts by WikiLeaks to try to scrub the data. They say that they went to the U.S. government and said, would you work with us on this? Mm -hmm. We don't want to endanger lives. But inevitably, uh, a couple of cycles through the saga, everything was kind of out in the open. Sure, it sort of seems like whatever uh, aspiration might have been there is sort of long gone, and, and, right. and in fact, it was perceived as kind of operative, kind right. of stick the thumb in somebody's eye. Even. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when it when it ends up uh, compromising, uh, you know, look, if it, it if it brings information to light that hold someone accountable uh, in a, a just way, I understand that. Mm -hmm. If it endangers sources that have been putting their lives on the line for something and really are collateral damage in this, mm -hmm. I think that's where a responsible institution kind of maybe takes a different tack than what WikiLeaks is. Sure. I, mean, I, don't, I don't necessarily dispute that the publication of, of information should be censored just outright. I think it's how it's brought to market and mm -hmm. what you know, what facility do you have to be responsible about it? Sure. Uh, ultimately, do you think it's good for democracy? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you could say that uh, you know, people have drawn the sort of connections between the, um, the disclosures in WikiLeaks starting the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. right, from the, uh, you know, the Tunisians that knew more about their government sure. and eventually leading to Mr. Bouazizi lighting himself on fire and then mm -hmm. the, the ripple effects. Um, I mean, are we better off today that uh, the information that Snowden has released is out there? I, you know, I, I'd say, yeah, possibly. I mean, there's a very good case that people make that he is treasonous, and mm -hmm. there's a very good case that people make that he is a patriot in the truest definition. Mm -hmm. That said, it's, um, are we as consumers more empowered by knowing that most everything we speak or write or type digitally is open to be read over by a government agency. Mm -hmm. uh, possibly, I think that, so it's, I'm-, I'm You know, I'm, those who've said, hey, listen, you can't expect anything less than that. I, I've 
I'm sort of skeptical of that response. I mean, it seems, I, I think for the most part, the revelations are pretty powerful and pretty significant. And, well, yeah. you know, maybe if you sort of sat me down and said, okay, do you think that, you know, the government's able to sort of uh, look at your email and, your, and kind of document your cell phone calls? I'd say, yeah, you know, I guess so. But it wouldn't be, you know, kind of emphatic, you know? So when, I, when I sort of saw it in black and white, as it were, kind of heard the reports, it actually was sort of, Alarming well, yeah, and, and distressing, you know? Yeah. And with the cooperation of a lot of the companies that we trust perhaps blindly, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. that's the, if you're literally paying, you know, the AT&Ts of the world or having kind of side deals with the Googles and the Yahoos or hacking into these companies, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very kind of sticky situation. So again, I'm, I'm for the information to be free or accessible, but again, I, I would prefer that it, it be in a responsible manner. Mm -hmm. and. Um, so I, I think that that's, it's, am I better off for knowing it? Probably. Um, w were there maybe better ways that it could have been brought to light? Possibly. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Let's shift gears a bit because we're kind of on the, on the back end of a very uh, a full week in terms of the political lands. Or kind of in, in a here and an off year, some significant elections. Right here in New York, we had yeah. the mayoral election in which Bill de Blasio won by a landslide. Right? Yeah. That's sort of fair to say. Uh, a kind of unreconstructed liberal. Yeah. Um, uh, beat Joe Loda, who was, uh, you know, kind of a you know, head, head of the, former head of the MTA, kind of Giuliani acolyte, yeah, significant uh, kind of administrator uh, right. in his own right. Um, down in Virginia, McAuliffe beat uh, Cuccinelli, right? So yeah. kind of a Tea Party candidate as against a Clinton kind of era person. Uh, and then Chris Christie, uh, again, just here in northern New Jersey, uh, I think really significant re-election victory. Right. And I guess I'm just curious to know, like, do you think we're in the midst of a, uh, a kind of renaissance around liberalism? Is there a kind of left, uh, leftward shift that's happening in the country in response to or in despite of the rightward shift that the Tea Party represents? Kind of as you sit in your chair and kind of think about these things and talk to people in this, this business of politics, what is it that you're able to discern about the kind of political landscape in the country right now? I think the, the easiest to discern is that the Republicans have a very tough situation in their own ranks mm -hmm. of trying to figure out, you know, the, the, the cliche phrase is the soul of the party. Mm -hmm. Which direction does it lead? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have a, a Christie who can perhaps win larger votes be the top of the ticket? Mm -hmm. Or do you have somebody who's more conservative, uh, whether it's a Ted Cruz character or whether it's a, uh, a you know, Paul from Kentucky? I mean, sure. Right? So it's a... It's a, a, that party has a lot of sort of figuring out to do and mm -hmm. very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, that said, do I see uh, sort of the Democrats taking advantage of this chaotic period? Not so much. Kind of um, figured out ways to, to basically <laughs> keep the status quo more right. or less. <laughs> right. So I don't, I mean, between these two parties, I'm not, I'm never impressed. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I, I think that sometimes they're just different shades of the same gray, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, I, I don't know if this is necessarily the time where a, a viable third party can have an impact. Um, mm -hmm. There have been kind of movements in the last the four years ago and even uh, two years ago where people were trying and, you know, didn't get there. I mean, I, I think that on certain social matters, mm -hmm. the country will probably generationally change out. Sure. Um, so, you know, gay marriage being one of them that I think as a, a population grows up to be voters, this is going to be a non-issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that, again, it comes right back to that sort of Republicans wrestling with 
you know, are we going to be a party that wants to institute a certain type of morality, mm -hmm. or do we want to win votes? Sure, um, sure. So that's um, so in that sense, perhaps the country is liberalizing a little bit. But you know, frankly, like after living in Texas and covering, you know, Oklahoma and Arkansas and Missouri and a lot of a lot of these states, that, Missouri, as Missouri, a case, maybe. sorry, yeah, sure. it depends on which side uh -huh. of this particular right. state you're that's in. Right? Right. So, um, so if I, I got to say that I think that the um, and again, this is a relatively limited. I mean, I've lived on the coasts most of my life, and mm -hmm. I've lived in the middle a little bit. But um, I think if you sat a, a kind of a family from a red state and a family from a blue state down and had a picnic, they would probably agree on 80% plus hmm. of how America should move forward. Mm -hmm. The 20%, they would probably uh, disagree agreeably. Mm -hmm. Say, so, you know what? That's how your family lives, and that's how you want to raise your kids. I get that. Mm -hmm. And completely opposite to what's happening in Congress. Mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. the dysfunction that is heightened and polarized and turned up to 11. Um, uh, on a scale of <laughs> 1 to 10, <laughs> I suppose, right. yeah. Yeah, is, is, that's really saddening and depressing. And so I don't necessarily know if D.C. specifically reflects the changing values of America mm -hmm. because D.C. can't really get it together. Sure. I think that, so on certain social issues, I think certainly, but I think on certain fiscal matters, I think people are perhaps trending conservative in different ways, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of when they start to think about their own retirements, is mm -hmm. my social security going to be solvent, solvent? Or, um, you know, what is the appropriate level of savings and what is a hand up versus a handout? Sure. Um, I think there's, you know, so I think that the, the, the population is changing on lots of things as these sort of young people start to become voters. Yep. They're going to bring a different sets of values. And certain things are going to be liberal and other things are going to be libertarian. Sure. And what about this notion that uh, income inequality um, is something that we've genuinely got to grapple with and that is sort of achieving a greater level of at least, I think, recognition than maybe it has over the last decade and a half? That we're kind of seeing the fruits of a significant regime of deregulation over the last few decades and real polarization in terms of just where people are on the income scale. Yeah, I mean, you know, I did a piece just a, a week or so ago on income inequality by just by looking at how does a fast food worker make it mm -hmm. on their salary. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we talked to a woman named Shanita Simon, followed her around. She lives in Brownsville, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. one of the toughest parts of Brooklyn there is. And her paycheck after working 40 hours a week is $270. That's it, mm -hmm. a week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she has... Uh, she has a couple of children from previous marriage. She has a toddler, and then her husband just got laid off. She's got a mother who's in ill health and a brother as well. So, I mean, she's literally putting food on the table for seven people. Mm -hmm. in a, and as we mentioned in the piece, there are so many different ways that we're all collectively paying mm -hmm. for the convenience of this particular restaurant chain to sure. pay her what it is. Sure. That, Right? I mean, we're paying to subsidize her housing. Mm -hmm. we're, I mean, she's not on food stamps. She's trying to be, but if she does, we're paying for that. Mm -hmm. So then there was a study down, of, I think, down uh, UC Berkeley Labor Center talking about it costs us collectively billions of dollars to support an industry that perhaps doesn't want to pay anymore. Sure. Right? And then, I mean, I, I posed the question to her. I said, well, what if, sure, they'll pay 15 bucks an hour instead of the 8 bucks you're making, but you might lose yourself out of a job. And... She's economically savvy enough to say to me, hey, you know what? My franchise and my group of franchises is a billion-dollar franchise. Mm -hmm. Like, I think they can afford a few it. Points, yeah. Right? Or, or, so it's, it's, it's ultimately 
what comes back, there was a, a, a documentary that somebody, uh, Hanson Hussein had done called Independent America a while back, that he took this road trip with his wife across the country and he just looks at independent stores and mom and pop stores. And what he finds really is that we, we, we all want to support the little store and the little franchise, and mm -hmm. the little, but we want low prices. We're unwilling to pay right. the higher price for it. Yep. And it, it does seem to me like the, um, the solution that we've kind of, you know, the, the, the Faustian bargain that we've struck is essentially lowest prices possible. So that's also yeah. what's driven a lot of the, uh, you know, um, uh, trade, kind of importing of goods that would populate the shelves of Walmart, for example, right? So lower pricing uh, in ex and, and, and in many instances, healthcare attached to a job in a, and instead of kind of increasing wage growth over time and perhaps the ability to uh, shop at mom and pop stores that actually are meant to support people in addition to providing right. you the goods that you want. I mean, right. it does seem like that's the sort of bargain somewhere along the way that as consumers we made. And we're kind of right. dealing with the realities of that right. situation at this point. Yeah, it's not like there's a section of the store at Target or Walmart that says made in the USA. Right. This plain cotton t-shirt is going to cost you $27. Mm -hmm. That one over there is going to cost you $1.50. Mm-hmm. There's your choice. Sure. We, you know, as consumers, we have that potential to make those choices, but a lot of times people are not in a circumstance where they, they're kind of feeling like, oh, look, you know what? I'm already living paycheck to paycheck. I'd love to support the other guy, but I need to put food on the table tonight. Yep. And if it's processed food or if it's a processed T-shirt from overseas, this is how I'm going to clothe myself and feed myself. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> let me shift gears a bit uh, and ask you, put you on the spot here with respect to a kind of South Asian political consciousness here in the United States. To what extent is there one? Are you seeing one emerge? Is there a kind of political voice? And, and do you expect that we will see candidates run in, in parts of the country where there is a high concentration of South Asians? You know, I mean, technically speaking, uh, the Republican Party has been more successful for South Asians than the Democratic Party has. Something, so Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley is two prominent examples, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, you I mean know, nationally a, recognized right, they're governors, governors that's of a, That's a big job, yeah. uh -huh. right? So uh, there has been, you know, it depends on the generations, but there has been almost well, maybe two generations before me they would support anybody who's Indian for anything, mm -hmm. right? Let's get our countrymen up there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, with their children that might have been uh, acclimated to the U.S. early on or naturalized here, and then the generation after that, they're saying, Dad, don't just write the check blankly. Let's, let's think about what their viewpoints are What's on angle X here? and Y sure. and Z, right? Uh -huh. So, so uh, you know, whether it's the Ami Beras who were vaulted into uh, the, the national spotlight because of his ability to raise funds mm -hmm. in the Bay Area mm -hmm. through essentially a network of South Asian professionals, mm -hmm. that's a, you know, a big deal. That said, I mean, that's just a money in politics game. Sure. Um, I think there is a little bit more of a consciousness happening in terms of now two, three, four generations in, these happen to be Americans with Indian roots. Mm -hmm. right? There's mm -hmm. very few Indian Americans, so to speak, running for politics who are first generation. Sure. At sure. this point, they're you know, mom, apple pie, and baseball as anybody else. They mm -hmm. just happen to have maybe a different set of cultural traditions, mm -hmm. maybe a different religious background, and certainly the immigrant story that most of America can connect to. Yep, yep. Um, and what do you, how do you think about the immigrant story, the kind of dual consciousness? How do you, how have you grappled with it over time? Oof, that's, a, that's another program. Uh, I think it's, <laughs> and you know, has it evolved? I mean, must, right? Yeah, I think that we 
any immigrant, and I mean, I, I lived there till I was seven or eight, then I went back there pretty much every summer as I was mm -hmm. growing up. So you always retain ties to yeah, family yeah. and to place. Yeah, my mother's uh, retired there. My, mm -hmm. I'm going back in uh, December to you know, talk to some family, hang out with family there that, uh, that lives there. So, you know, I, it was a really tough decision for me to become a U.S. citizen. Mm. I had the right to it for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was really just something that I kind of grappled with because I, it was, you know, I even blogged about the day that I became a citizen mm -hmm. and, and what that means to me and how. And kinda... sense of giving up something. I mean, is that yeah. is that essentially? Yeah, I mean, it? And yeah. It, you know, and I have a this thing called an overseas citizen of India, which is kind of like a soft dual citizenship, but. Uh -huh. um, you know, I, I am, so you still got the. Still, 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 <laughs> I know, but you uh -huh. know, it's, I, I've I've grown up here. I owe a tremendous amount to the United States, mm -hmm. and I, I think that if there are problems, uh, I want to be part of the solution. And sure. I, I committed, and I yep. signed up, and I'm an American. So there's that. That said, you know, there's a huge part of me that's Indian, mm -hmm. and I don't want to forget that. I don't want, uh, hopefully, my children to forget that. I, you know, I, I want to stay connected to where I came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to do in the last few minutes, sorry, is... Speed round. Speed <laughs> round, exactly. Uh, and actually, what, what I didn't do here is, I, you, usually we'll pull up this globe, which is like back to the 1950s. So I like it, the I like sorry, it. still got Ceylon as opposed to Sri Lanka. Whoa, so we'll kind of yeah, get, get India there. Um, as you kind of project forward and think about um, kind of impact that you'd like to have on the world uh, going forward, kind of, what's, what's the sort of arc of your life uh, <laughs> as you think about what, uh, what lies ahead? I mean, I uh, became a journalist because it's a license to stay curious, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. you, just like you do, you get a chance to talk to all kinds of interesting people, mm -hmm. go to different places, just kind of feel the fabric of stories that are all around us. Sure. I'd like to keep doing that. Now, what kinds of institutions support me or can I get an audience that supports me independently? How does the storytelling and how does the platform and the vehicle to tell these stories change over time? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'd like to continue being a storyteller mm -hmm. in whatever capacity that is. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were joking the other day, uh, you know, uh, probably in another 10 or 15 years, if, if I have a, a high school age child or something, I, I'd probably try to find a job in a university system because there's no way I can afford higher uh -huh. education today. Right? None of us can. Right? Uh, uh -huh. So um, I, either I, that or start a move, or kind of get get a part of the movement <laughs> to kind of shout down the escalating prices. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Of or it's higher uh, education. The, the equivalent of uh, some sort of Saul Khan Academy of, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. for higher learning. That's right. But, but anyway, but I, I think I'd like to keep giving back. I'd like to empower more people to tell their own stories, mm -hmm. which is going to happen in a different way than sort of one person becoming the only truth teller. Sure. I'd rather try to empower other people around me to say, um, hey, ha here are some tools. Here's, here's some maybe fundamental things that you might want to think about in telling mm -hmm. the story around you in a far more authentic way than I can tell it from my vantage point here. Mm -hmm. So whether that's local and regional journalism that's happening domestically or there's a fantastic uh, uh, nonprofit called Video Volunteers who mm -hmm. actually take the cameras out to rural villagers, teach them how to tell stories, and they tell stories in rural India in ways that no sort of network or foreign reporter could ever tell. Sure, sure. talking to their peers, right? So, I mean, whether it's a hurricane that you're covering or whether it's that kind of thing, by the time I get there as a network correspondent, trust me, the person who writes for that local paper, who works for that local radio station, whose kids play Little League on the same league with everybody that's affected, they've mm -hmm. had that story mm -hmm. cold because mm -hmm. they have everyone on their speed dial mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. I'm sitting here trying to catch up, right? So... How do we empower 
greater audiences to be able to tell stories that are compelling? Um, how do we get people engaged in the storytelling process that can affect um, policy decisions on a national level? I'd like to try to figure out how to attack some points of those. Angle of that. And do you, you know, I've heard that with the, uh, with the reduction in the uh, sort of number of reporters in local news organizations around this country, with the sort of decline in local newspapers, uh, that there's genuine concern about the loss of accountability with local elected officialdom and leadership. You know, do you think that that, that that is A, an issue, and B, one that can be addressed with this sort of citizen empowerment, kind of citizen journalism empowerment? Kind of what is the end game there? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the, again, the, the business model of fundamental sort of newspaper journalism just mm -hmm. collapsed mm -hmm. for multiple reasons. Um, the advertising market just got killed by Craigslist. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the internet sort of came along and made everything accessible to, on your mobile device. Did you physically need to have a paper and the costs of printing a paper and bringing it to your door? That all said, uh, are there in, you know, even though AOL's patch.com system did not work nearly as well as Tim Armstrong would have wanted, around Sandy, what you saw mm -hmm. was that local journalism was crucial. Sure. People needed to know which shelter is open, what uh, locale needs what sorts of services post the storm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, I think journalism has a, has a very solid future in the, the fact that people will always need to know localized information. Yep. So, and it's something that can't necessarily be done from a a complete sort of a, a Borg in one central sure. command unit. It's not a scale game. That's actually one of being. Yeah, and then pushing. now it's about figuring out, well, is that something that, I mean, it used to be that the, the news was the stuff in between the ads, mm -hmm. and that's what the paper was sort of printed for. Sure. But so is, is, the, is the news process the thing that you need to try to be funding, or is there, can, could possibly the generation of news be something that um, is, is kind of a corollary to some other sorts of business. Mm -hmm. Say, by the way, we're going to have this other business, and that's actually going to fund this thing that isn't really, we're not going to be in it for the money here, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So and I think the public media and subscriber-driven model mm -hmm. is a solid one, because if you provide value to a particular community, they will reward that. Sure. And so in an incredibly small sort of hyper-local level, mm -hmm. that's actually where it's most sustainable, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. perhaps it's a barter system, perhaps it's off of Bitcoin, yeah. I don't know. Right, I don't know how that evolves in the future. Bitcoin. That's going to be for another program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wonderful. Well, Hari, thank you so much for taking the time out this evening. Yeah. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for having me. Uh, that brings to a close this edition of Counterculture. I'm Quayley Washington. He's Hari Srinivasan. And let's cue the music. All right. All right, man. Good to see you, man. <laughs> you this too. is good. Um, Bitcoin, man. I have been trying to get a little bit more... Uh, I, I just sat down with a dude uh, who was a little bit of a kind of gold bug libertarian type. Like way long Bitcoin. I just tried to like. The life I've led, and oh, it's a wonder I ain't dead. Drinking and gambling. Staying out all 